Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT Podcast, your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Live back with you on the AAMFT podcast. Happy New Year. Welcome to season number four, where we strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. Maybe you've listened from the start, or maybe you're new to the podcast, and we try to give you the latest and greatest in systemic therapy. One of our biggest listener bases are those clinicians, whether they be LMFTs, students in an MFT training program, or just mental health professionals in general, are those wanting to learn more about working with couples. And we've done a lot of great shows with pioneers in couples therapy and issues influencing working with couples and cutting edge techniques. Today, we're going to talk to Dr. Ellen Wachtel who's the author of several highly influential books for professional therapists and is known to many MFTs. She wrote a book that came out in 2019 called The Heart of Couple Therapy, which is a really good overview to the nuts and bolts of doing couples therapy and written in a very practical and accessible way to whether you are an experienced couple therapist or you just are getting your feet wet, working with couples. She has a lot of practical advice and tips, which we'll preview today in our talk. Ellen has a PhD in psychology, but she also, before she went into the field, she got a law degree from Harvard Law School. She's taught at the famous Ackerman Institute for Family Therapy in New York, the City University of New York, and New York's City St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital. She's also married to a prominent psychologist, Paul Wachtel, and the mother of two grown children that she's very proud of. We'll have a conversation with Ellen. We'll come back and we'll talk to you about other AMFT resources if you are interested in working with couples. Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast, and we are really talking about the heart of couples therapy today. Many of our listeners are practitioners and just want to know more about the core ingredients that make effective couples therapy, and no better person to do that with than Ellen Wachtel. The first question always, Ellen, if you've listened to the show, we'd like to know a little bit about our expert. You have a unique career path with both a JD and a PhD. So I'm curious how you decided to become a therapist and interested in working with couples specifically. Um, I went to law school pretty young and I only 
practice law for two years, but it was in family court, legal aid family court. And I really was doing a lot of impromptu family therapy in the hallway. There were kids who were being charged with delinquency, but there were also lots of kids who were persons in need of supervision cases where the family just the kid was out of control. So, of course, it wasn't very effective. Five-minute family interventions, but it's natural to switch to psychology. And I was also, by that time, already uh, married to my husband. I was married when I was in law school, and he was a psychologist. I knew a lot about the field. What gave you an interest in working with couples? I did postdoctoral training at the Ackerman Family Institute. So for many years, I did work with families and young children. In fact, I wrote a book about working with families and young children. Couples were, well, both, but couples and families and young children. I, I love that you really can see results. I love, I'm very action-oriented. So it's so gratifying to see results. But Really, with couples, you know, it's very results-oriented. Okay, so we have a lot of experienced couples therapists, but also listeners that are just getting their feet wet in the field of couples therapy. And it's very challenging, even if you're excited about doing the work, to first sit in the room with the couple. What do you think throughout your career as an educator and a practitioner, what do you think are the biggest dilemmas and challenges of doing couples therapy? I think that's a very important question. And the biggest challenge, I think, is being able to focus on the problems, on the negatives, on the reasons that the couple is seeking counseling at the same time that you build on strengths and instill hope. Hope is essential, and research has shown this for both couples therapy and individual therapy, that it's, a, it's associated with positive outcomes. So that is, a, that is the challenge. I mean, there are definitely ways to do it, and I hope we'll get to talk about some of them. But that is the biggest challenge, that you need, people need to leave the session, every session, if possible, though it's not so easy sometimes. Every session, they need to leave feeling a little more hopeful, a little better, that they're not just uncovering problems. So I would say that's the biggest dilemma. Yes. Uh, How do we not minimize what brought them there, but also find a way and create a pathway that is credible for both partners uh, that things can get better? And I think uh, another challenge is framing it in a cycle whereas you know you have a lot of times people come in they say fix my partner or they don't see it as a cycle talk about how you help people understand their contribution to the couple cycle i i think that right from the beginning i ask a question that sets the tone which is after hearing you know about the issues and whatever i always ask what do you know about yourself that makes you not the easiest person in the world to be in a relationship with? Uh, What do you know about yourself? And people are often a little startled by that, but it sets the tone that um, it's, you know, when I often tell people it's, it's actually often easier to change something about yourself than to change the other person. Both contribute, and we need to look at that. Another big challenge in couples therapy is how do you motivate people, and a lot of what my new book is about, how do you motivate people 
to want to change and to think that they can change and to not say, well, this is the way I am. So that, that's another, another challenge. But I, d- I do want people to think about what do they know about themselves that contributes to the problem. Your book, you talk about choice points and how to focus on them. Give us some example of choice points in couples therapy. Choice points is, uh, to me, tremendously important and that in every, practically, you know, every sentence, every paragraph, a therapist is making decisions, often not so consciously, but making decisions about what to respond to, to, what to ask about, and those decisions have a tremendous impact on where the therapy will go. And, and the decisions will vary depending on your own sense of what's wrong, on your own theory of what is the difficulty here, where, you know, where you're coming from. So I'll, I will give you, I have, you know, many, many examples in my book, but I'll give, I'll give one example. So I'm going to read a paragraph, if you don't mind, a very sh- short paragraph. Uh, these are, t- this is something literally said in a session. Everything that I'm going to read are things like really verbatim. So a woman working with a couple and the woman in the couple, it's a heterosexual couple, says, I thought things were getting better between us. I really was beginning to trust him and thought I might even be ready to start trying to get pregnant. He's been so sweet and caring, but yesterday he left his email open. I wasn't intending to snoop, but a familiar name caught my eye an old girlfriend of his, and I found myself opening up the email. It was devastating. They'd been communicating for months, and she sent pictures of herself practically naked. And the more I read, the worse I felt. Tom told her we were in couples therapy, and he might be available again soon. I just can't understand how he could do that. I feel so betrayed. To be fair, The last email I read was one where he was breaking it off, but still, for months, he's been having an emotional affair. You hear a statement like this, and there are so many different directions you can go in. You could ask the woman to tell more about how devastated she felt. You could ask her to tell him how devastated she felt. You could ask him what was going on, what was in his mind, how did he think about this. I mean, there's so many options. You could focus on, um, and this is counterintuitive, but you could say, oh, you felt things were starting to improve and he'd been so sweet and caring. What do you mean? Can you tell me about that? So why would one want to do that? Because maybe it would make the, the man less defensive because she is focusing before on the things that were sweet and caring. It's also showing that she was, even with her hurt and betrayal, she is aware of, of the sweet and caring. Or you could focus on her last statement. To be fair, the last email I read was one where he was breaking it off. So you might focus on that and, and in many different ways. Like you could ask him about that or you could say to her, and this is where I try to motivate people to, in, in certain ways, I might say I'm very struck by how even in your hurt and betrayal you're able to actually notice that 
you know, you're able to say, to be fair, the last email he was breaking it off. That might mean that she's looking for a way to try to repair this. You know, there are so many options in one paragraph, and depending on where the couple is in the work, depending on what you think is necessary, it will, it should determine what, what choice you make. If you're trying to build on positives, you certainly have to understand what was going on, but you definitely would want to look at her, maybe she is trying to feel better about it. He was breaking it off. When you're working systemically with multiple people in the room, whether a couple or family, there's infinitely more choice points. Because if I just have an individual in the room and your example, I can validate that woman, I can connect with her, but when I have to balance my alliance and my relationship with both people and tie it back into the cycle it, it does make it more challenging and there are so many more choice points and we also bring into couples therapy uh, that relationship that we're in of the couple but also your previous relationships with other romantic partners and your family of origin as well so you focus in your book on each person's legacy issues in couples therapy too how do you get at these issues legacy issues I, I do want to say is that they're not necessarily negative they they can be positive they are just what what do people what are people bringing to it from their past and sometimes it's very positive things it, it refers to a particular mix of values cultural expectations all that you know painful memories positive memories vulnerabilities all, all that so the genogram, which uh, I'll talk more about in a little while, is a very long and slow process in the way I do it. And I wait usually a, a while until things have calmed down, until we've made some progress before getting into the genogram. But another important way early on to get at some of the important issues is I, I will often ask in a first or second session, tell me some things that are really important in your history, important to know about you. That's in lieu of doing a long, slow family history because when you work with couples, there's an urgency about it. They're in crisis a lot of times, or not in crisis, they're in a lot of pain, and they, I like to get moving on things pretty quickly. So if I ask about, tell me some things that are important for me to know about you, I already begin to get some legacy issues. Well, I came from a family where, you know, they'll tell you something like one person, <laughs> I remember this, it came from a family of very, very uh, left-wing people. He said, my family, you know, my grandfather fought in the Spanish Civil War. And I was like, really? I mean, that was a funny thing to say. But it, it, but it really is an indication of things that the person feels shaped him or important to him. I'll always say, tell me about anything. Did anybody, did, you know, you were, you, did, were you in an accident? Were you a victim of a crime? Anybody you were close to? Anything, anything that's important for me to know about you that you think has influenced you in some way. So that's the quick, quick and easy initial trying to get some legacy issues. Then there's the genogram, and that's, a, that's, you know, I've developed this way of doing a genogram that I think, think of as almost a window into each person's psyche. 
Also talk about how you'd set that up. Obviously, classic family therapists are familiar with the genogram and more family of origin type of treatments. Certainly Murray Bowen, Monica McGoldrick's work. Talk about how you use it in couples therapy and how you set it up. for. So what I do is wait a while. It needs to be at a time when there's not an urgency to talk about something else. And I say that I'm going to get a family history and it'll take a while and we'll start with one person and the other person will basically just be listening unless they know some of these family members and then I will ask your input if it's okay with the the person who's giving the history. And the way I do it, people are familiar with the structure, you know, what it looks like, a genogram, but I will ask, I start by give me adjectives that describe family members. And I'm interested in what are the patterns of adjectives that people use. Do they describe, and often it, it becomes clear that person will describe people along a certain set of dimensions. Like, oh, uncle so-and-so was very outgoing. Aunt so-and-so was, was introverted person was very loving, very nurturing. This person was very, had a bad temper. Like, I, I want the adjectives. And often there are repeated, like there's a dimension that people are looking at, and you then know that this dimension is very important to this person. Uh, because, you know, there are hundreds of adjectives that you can use for people. I will often, the reason it, it can be, you know, it takes quite a while, is that I will ask when it's an unusual adjective or one that's been, is repeatedly referenced, I'll say, so give me an example when you say the person was very, wasn't, was not very assertive. Give me an example. What do you mean? And that, of, so often those anecdotes will give me a sense of sort of important family, family stories. The other thing that's I ask about a lot is what was the relationship like between your mother and father, your grandfather and your grandmother, your aunt and uncle. So on what what are the dimensions that people are describing relationships? He had a bad temper, but she knew how to calm him down. So let's say somebody says something like that. So that's a clue in a way. Maybe, not necessarily, but maybe that's the person's vision of how his or her partner should handle his bad temper, like depending on the tone. You know, they got along well, he was very moody, but his wife was very able to handle that. So you get all kinds of clues as to what people have not actually articulated to themselves, but you can then use in your, in your work with the couple. And people are fascinated by it. They usually, when I give them some feedback about, oh, it looks like this is an issue or this is what you think about, they often are you're quite fascinated and surprised. It's, it feels a little bit like, well, how did you know that? But I know it because it's, for those of you who might uh, have any psychodynamic training, when I went to grad school, I was trained in using projective projective testing, like thematic apperception tests. And you know, when I worked with children, I would get them to tell stories because these stories tell what's on people's minds. Well, certainly a genogram, when used the right way, is a powerful tool of connection that the therapist helps 
in many cases an individual connect the dots and see themes across generations where they may not know. Now, the power of doing it with partner present, I imagine, is that you're also learning about yourself, but if done the right way, your partner is learning about you. And if you can see how those themes impact the current relationship. So how do you use that genogram to help the couple and what brought them in? Because I think it's an interesting experience to do a genogram, but couples come in, hey, we're having problems. How is this going historical going to help us with the here and now? So how do you tie it into the here and now? Absolutely wonderful uh, question. So there's a couple of ways. One is that it can help deepen the understanding of patterns that the couple gets stuck in, and you know when, which is very helpful. So the sensitive, let's say the person has, you, you really see from the genogram and from other things that this is a person who has very negative feelings about. Uh, people in the family who were too dependent, right? So they may have a sensitivity to dependency. And when their partner acts in a way that's dependent, they have an intense reaction. So you can look at how that influences the pattern. But very crucial to the way I work is that I really don't think, whether it's couples therapy or individual therapy, I don't think that insight is enough. I think action is very important. So for instance, if you saw that pattern, you might come up, have the couple come up with some kind of intervention that when the person, one person is triggering that dislike of dependency, that will help not trigger that, which might be that together they decide that if she were going going to ask for some help, she's, that they would actually acknowledge it. Listen, I know you you hate if I get too dependent, and I, I'm really not. I'm going to try to really learn this. I'm going to take notes on it. I'm not going to ask you a million times because I, I know you really don't like that. You know, So you would actually acknowledge that, like the person would would have certain sensitivities. We all have our sensitivities and people have to learn to work around them. The other thing that I think is very helpful is that I don't feel that people have to solve their own problems. That you're part of a couple. So let's say, I don't know, let's say, say that you come, a person begins to understand that they are, that they're very sensitive to, to being controlled or very sensitive to criticism. So it's not enough to say, okay, I have to learn not to be more sensitive to criticism. Your partner can help you with that. Your partner, I I once had a couple, I always find this, I always laugh when I think about it. I once worked with a couple where they were social scientists and they they were researchers. And they came up with this idea, I just found it so funny, that when one person was saying something that the other could perceive as critical, that, that they would come up and say, I'll tell you how serious it is. On a scale of zero to 10, this is, this is really a four, but could you please not leave your, you know, your, your coffee cup on the table? It's only a four. Don't take it too serious. You know what I mean? I, I know that's like a very... You know, strange. I mean, most couples are, aren't going to want to do that. But it's just that taking whatever you know is a sensitivity to the person, and rather than hope that now that they understand it, they'll be less sensitive, no, come up together with something that can help that person. 
you know, to the, they don't have to solve the problem on their own. Can you think in the field, since you have been in it, other things that have really changed in the way we work with couples? Obviously, you're saying some universals today focused on strength, each person's contribution to the cycle, partner together. What are the other biggest changes that you think in the field that you have experienced when working with couples? Right. Well, you know, there's, t- uh, there's a couple of things that they're quite different. For one thing, with texting, we can often really, really see what, you know, because people have the text, and I, I, I try to discourage them from having serious conversations through text, but it is really so common now. So you actually see the exchange. People take out their text, and you actually see, you know, the misunderstandings and what happened and whatever. So there's, um, in, in a way, you know, I think. I used to say, and sometimes I still do, you know, I want to be a fly on the wall. If I were in your house, what would I see? How did this argument go? What would, you know, I'd like... But sometimes you can literally see because (laughs) you you have the text in front of you, you know? So that's one thing. The other thing is, I think the field has changed more towards helping people with acceptance, not... And that is... uh, A lot of the research points to that, too, that... You can't get everything from everybody. You can't keep... And if if you are looking at strengths, then you can also help people ex- feel better about the shortcomings because nothing's perfect. And certainly we know from the work of great people like uh, John Gottman and Neil Jacobson and Andy Christensen that not every problem is solvable. So if you don't have acceptance or tolerance techniques in your therapist toolbox, you're woefully unprepared to help those couples because what's more frustrating than being in a room with a couple trying to solve a problem that's unsolvable? So I I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think acceptance is a very big thing. I also see some changes in couples that aren't so much about how the therapist works with them, but just have been interesting to me. I think over the years, I don't know that this is so good, but I think as there's more acceptance in couples of people needing to work long hours and be available to customers, clients, whatever. Uh, Used to be years ago, people would complain about their partner more for coming home late, for working too hard. Now I I see less complaints about that. I think the whole culture has changed and, you know, there's a sense that texting and electric, like, you you know, people have a lot of trouble setting any boundaries with work, but it's not their individual problem. It's a cultural problem. Tell us in our remaining moments about your new book and what listeners can expect to find. The book is a very practical book. It's The aim was really to be something that would be useful, really regardless of what theoretical orientation you were coming from, whether you were an emotion-focused couples therapist or a cognitive-oriented couples therapist. Uh, the feedback I get is that that is how people experience it because a lot of the new book is about how to motivate people how to get them to buy in to changing. And I do a lot of, uh, and, and I would say almost, I don't know, maybe a third of the book is literally what I would say. Like I, I always, when I learn something myself, I will go through books and really look and highlight what is the therapist actually saying 
actually saying? What are the actual words? So I would say almost a third of the book are my actual words that I say to people because it, so much is in the delicacy of the wording. But I use a lot of positive reinforcement, positive underlining, not just about the the positives in the relationship, but in a way I teach people how to get the most out of couples therapy. So for instance, if somebody, I don't know, just says, we had a terrible fight, really got out of hand, I was very, you know, I, I came home very stressed and whatever, I might interrupt as an almost an aside and say, I'm very struck by how you're acknowledging you came home stressed. Now let's get on with the rest. But you know, that's great. You really are looking at yourself and you came home stressed and that was part of it, you know. So I look for those nuggets in which people have some self-awareness or a nugget where they are being less defensive. I, I might say, you know, I'm just so struck by how you're taking in what I what I've said, it's not so easy to hear what I'm saying, and I, I see, I really see that you're listening. Uh, that's great. So I, I'm doing a lot of positive underlining around the process of the couples therapy, and then, of course, within within the couple relationship itself. So the book is a very practical book. In some ways, I think of it almost. <laughs> You know, I wrote a self-help book for couples some years ago called We Love Each Other But. But I think of this as like a self-help book for therapists on how to be a couples therapist. It's, it's very practical, very practical. You know, what do you do? Not just what do you do in a first session. What do you do in a first session when it doesn't go the way you would like? Or it doesn't, you know, when the person is saying something. And, you know, you know, like I look at all the dilemmas that people have as therapists and try to address them. Not probably, not all. I've probably missed quite a few, but I tried to cover as many as I could think of. And for our listeners, Ellen, what is the name of the book? It's called The Heart of Couples Therapy, Knowing What to Do and How to Do It. It's pu- published by Guilford Press. Great. And for our listeners that who want to drop you a line or maybe continue the conversation on some of the things mm-hmm. that they heard you bring up today, how can they get a hold of you? Sure. I'm very happy to have people email me. My email is Ellen. that's one word, W-A-C-H-T-E-L-E-L-L-E-N at yahoo.com, Ellen at yahoo.com. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another installment of the AAMFT podcast. The first installment of season four. So as I said in the intro, if you have wondered upon the podcast for the first time, welcome. And we invite you to check us out. We drop two Fridays a month and all the past installments you can catch up with wherever you find your favorite podcast. But if you're interested in couples, AAMFT has you covered. Let me give you a few resources. First off, start out by going to aamft.org. There you will find the topical interest networks. And of those in the AAMFT, one of the most popular is couple and intimate relations. The mission of the couples and intimate relationship interest network is to advance both the science and the practice of couples therapy with all romantic, intimate, or sexual relationship. 
The network focuses on best practices for interventions, public education, and creating a community of clinicians and scholars who work within the scope of couple and intimate relationships. This uh, network brings together the best resources, training, and educational opportunities to foster connection and discussion to spur advancement and promote the awareness of best practices in working with systemic relationships. So as a member of this interest network, you get resources like quarterly webinars, specialized training, connections with innovators and developers of cutting edge approaches, and you get a community. I I know I have been a member of this group for three years, and I really appreciate the dialogue with people from all over, not just the United States, all over the world. Even though it's the AAMFT, our outreach to international members is very important. So you can find out all about membership on amft.org too. We have two categories of members, student members and professional members. If you're new to AMFT, I invite you to check out all of these. And if you're an existing member, remember you don't have to wait till the end of your membership cycle to join. You can join any interest network, including this couple's intimate relationships, also very popular interest networks like family therapists in schools, family therapists in healthcare, intervention research and systemic family therapy, margins to center, which is all about cultural connections among MFTs. There's MFTs working with trauma. There's the queer and trans advocacy network, substance abuse, and systemic therapy across the the lifespan. Also, telehealth, very important in this day and age we're living in. And finally, last but not least, working with military personnel and their families. Many of these interest networks have been focused in past seasons of the podcast. We've talked to their leadership, and you can find all of those in the archives as well. Another thing, if you're in the need for CEUs, I encourage you to go to AMFT's online learning platform known as Tenio. Go to amft.org. Go to the Enhanced Knowledge tab, and then you'll see Online Education and Training, which will take you right to Tenio. And there is a ton of couples therapy-related content, some of the best speakers and presenters that have captured at previous conferences and webinars. You'll want to check that out. And as always, if you're an AMFT member, either student or professional, there is a pretty hefty discount on these online education opportunities. And last but not least, check out what we have done in the podcast in the last four years. I've been lucky and pretty much been able to talk to everyone that I've wanted to talk to. People have been very gracious throughout the years. And this is just a list, brief list of people that have really impacted couples therapy that we've talked to. We started off our series back in 2019 with the great Susan Johnson in a two-part. Sue was so engaging, you couldn't just contain it to one episode, a two-part Sue Johnson podcast. We've talked to the late, great David Snarch in one of his last interviews before he passed away in 2020. Michelle Wiener Davis, Terry Reel, Dick Schwartz, The Gottmans, John and Julie, Andy Christensen of Integrative Behavioral Couples Therapy, the great professional duo of Scott Stanley and Howard Markman with their prep approach, just some of the many great leaders 
and couples therapy that have been featured on the podcast. And I look forward to bringing you another great season where we move between the pioneers in the field of systemic therapy and the topics that affect you as a couple and family therapist. Drop me a line. You can reach me, Eli, at NorthstarCounselingCenter.com. You can also find me at EliCarum.com. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. The AMFT is at the AMFT on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. Until next time, my friends. Stay safe. Stay systemic.